Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Glad you could be with me for this March 9, 2015 edition of the Heretics Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Yeager. George Lincoln Rockwell would be 97 years old today, but I'm not going to be talking about him. However, uh, I was just considering whether he could live to be 97, and he was sort of a laid-back guy, and it's possible he could have done that. And wouldn't that be something? But uh, unfortunately, his life was cut short, and not by an enemy, but by a so-called friend. Well, the Nazi Documentation Center in Munich is scheduled to open April 30th, 2015, the 70th anniversary of American troops' liberation of this city from Nazi rule. Can you imagine that Germans would consider that the, their city of Munich was actually liberated in 1945 by American troops. But that's the way it's presented, excuse me, that's the way it's presented today, and nobody complains about it. That's the way it's presented in Germany, even. This article comes from Deutsche Welle, which is the German information office, so to speak. Uh, so this is what they say. And the... Uh, the title of the permanent exhibition, which will be, uh, which will be there, is called Munich and National Socialism. Munich, of course, you know, being the home of National Socialism, where the where Hitler and his party and his whole co concept began, and then spread throughout the rest of Germany. The exhibition will cover approximately 1,000 square meters and will be constructed in the coming weeks. The exhibition covers the dramatic period from World War I through to the origins, rise, and then crimes of the Nazi Party through to Germany's new beginnings in 1945. Well, that's, that's how they describe it. So you can see from this that Germany today is a country that celebrates its own defeat in two world wars and accepts the conqueror's victory as a liberation. But did the Germans back at that time want to be liberated from their National Socialist government headed by Adolf Hitler? No, they fought with all they had, including women, boys, and old men, to defend their nation and homeland uh, from the invaders. And what happened then to Germans? that they can go along with this today, that they're not rising up and saying, no, this isn't our story, the story you're telling. Well, it's a story that can be called the conquest of Germany as a Reich, as a united force, and as a noble race. Why have the Germans been singled out for refusal to allow them to have their nation? Uh, really, among so many, uh, one of the few people in the world that is not allowed to to have their nation under their own direction? And why have they been singled out for punishment, uh, such extreme punishment when they refuse to acquiesce to that, especially if they don't acquiesce to this, uh, to what has been done to their nation, then uh, they get even more extreme punishment. I mean, not even more than they ever got, but very extreme punishment today in the form of uh, being taken to court, being fined, heavy fines, being put in prison, and being, uh, you might say, desocialized, being 
uh, out of work and, and so on. The answer to this, ladies and gentlemen, and this is not the first time it's been said, but in the simplest terms, it's because of the powerful rise of the Jews. Well, where did these Jews rise up so powerfully? I'm going to go do a little uh, brief history or stroll back through history here for a moment and cover this ground once more that William the Conqueror was the first Norman king of England. He reigned from 1066 until his death in 1087. He, yeah, I said here that he was a Norman. He came from Normandy and and uh, successfully uh, defeated the current king in England and became the uh, first Norman king of England. Uh, eight successions later, in 1272, Edward I became the king, and uh, 18 years later, in 1290, he had to have become aware that the Jews had become a major problem in England, probably wielding too much influence in his realm, and no doubt with many particulars spelled out, because in that year he had them expelled and not allowed to enter again. There had to be have been a reason why he did that certainly was not anti-Semitism. It was because he had determined that they were bad for his kingdom. This lasted until Protestant Oliver Cromwell and Charles II allowed some Jews back in in 1649, some 300 years later. Then more and more came. Why did Cromwell do that? Well, was it only for Jewish gold? That would be one reason. But in 1740, about 100 years, less, a little less than 100 years later, that they had been allowed back in, the Jews were very surprisingly granted citizenship of that country. Mainly favored, this, this move was mainly favored by the upper classes and the leaders, and leaders in the Protestant church. Uh, Britain had gone Protestant. But the common people were so outraged at this that in 1740, that no, that the 1740 law was abrogated 13 years later, so that would have been in, in 1753. Now, when we say, when they say common people, I don't think it means uh, poor people. It means the commoners, which were those who weren't the aristocrats. So it would, it would include a lot of business people, professional people, uh, shopkeepers, and so on, you know, uh, who who found that this gift to the Jews was, uh, was totally out of place, and they made such a fuss at that time that uh, they had to change the law. Well, what happened then, the Jews were still allowed to be in the country, but they weren't citizens, so they converted to Christianity, and with their gold mixed themselves in with the aristocracy and married into it and so on if they hadn't already started but they were they were continuing to do that they became Christians and changed their names and then once they married into other families they would have become citizens their children certainly would have been that is then that uh, these Jews became regular British folk in time and very wealthy ones too who hold titles and 
have huge amounts of land and so on. And this is how, in a very simplified form, Britain became a Jewish nation, which it is today, I would say, I think it is, and I think we need to recognize that. And what was Germany doing all this time? Well, a very different story we, we see for Germany. Basically, it was playing out its role as the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation under the Catholic Church, which was very anti-Jewish at that time and for a long time. After, for a long time, it remained very anti-Jewish. So there you have the British becoming Protestant and friendly with Jews, and you have Germany in a more spiritual role uh, under the Catholic Church and the Pope where Jews were considered to be uh, unwanted, you know. Jews were not were not a part of who they were. Briefly then, in the year 800, Pope Leo III crowned the Frankish... Uh, how, how the... Uh, this is how the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation uh, took form in the year 800. Pope Leo III crowned the Frankish king Charlemagne as emperor. So a Fra the Frankish king was basically German, even though as a Frank Reich is uh, the word for France, um, but there's a overlap there. The title continued in the Carolinian family, and Charlemagne was a Carolinian that Charles and Carol are basically the same name. And in this Carolinian family, they they continue to rule as emperors, and their rule was contested by Italian rulers. And you can understand that because it was all under Rome, the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire, you know, until 924 when finally the last of the Italian rulers who sought to challenge the Germans lost or died or whatever, and there weren't any more that tried to do that. So, And at that time, 924, Otto I was crowned emperor. And in some people say that the, the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation began with Otto I, and others, uh, historians say, no, it began with Charlemagne, but in in any case, these were two very important men, both Germans. This empire lasted until 1806. From 800 or 924 till 1806. And it was considered by itself as the continuation of the original Roman Empire. That is, the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation considered itself to be the continuation of the original Roman Empire and got its legitimacy from that. So in essence, the Germans beat out the Italians for this title, and they held it for uh, a long time. So they were caught up with that, and uh, the Holy, this, this empire was a loosely arranged group of uh, all, all kinds of different units and uh, duchies and so on, uh, not particularly tightly organized. The, the way it ended... In 1806 was that Emperor Francis II dissolved the empire on 6 August uh, 1806 because they were defeated by Napoleon at the Battle of Austerlitz. So uh, upon that defeat by Napoleon, uh, the empire dissolved and 
I guess you could say maybe everybody was on their own then. But that wasn't very much longer that many things took place because in 1871 is the date of the unification of Germany under Bismarck. So, And Frederick the Great had been playing a big role in there. So that we're really up into modern times here already. And so now around, uh, we could say, I'm saying, that around 1800 we have Jewish Britain and Christian Central Europe. So with this, you've got a large part of the answer as to why Germany has been treated the way it has. Now, just uh, going into continuing on here, Adolf Hitler was born in 1889, 75 years after the end of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation ended. And uh, he grew up there in Austria. He moved to Germany and fought bravely in World War One. In, uh, during uh, 1914 to 18, and during his youth, anti-Semitic thought and politics was a part of the German national character in large part. Not everyone, and they, you know, Jews had made a lot of inroads in Germany, but generally there was not a lot of acceptance across the board of Jews. And in 1919, Hitler decided to join. In t- after he got out of the uh, after the end of World War One, he decided to join and take over a very small anti-Semitic, anti-communist workers' party in Munich. In 1920, he gave a public speech in the Great Hall of the Hofbrauhaus titled "Why We Are Anti-Semites," and he began this speech in his usual straightforward way. He said, "My dear countrymen and women." We are quite used to being generally referred to as monsters. He was, by we, he meant his his party, the NSDAP. And we are considered particularly monstrous because in a question that certain gentlemen in Germany are nervous about, we are marching at the head, namely in the question of the opposition to the Jews. So uh, we can well understand that Jewish Britain and Jewish America along with being against Germany for economic reasons, and the Jews were part of that, economics also, and why they would be against Germany for economic reasons. But now they had reason for their Jewish element to be against her, to be against Germany for that reason, for, for the agitation of anti, anti-Semitism and uh, the rise of Adolf Hitler. So the Jews in the U.S., and the Jews in Britain, along with the Jew communists of the Soviet Union, set about to defeat Hitler and keep his ideas down forever. In other words, to stamp them out. They succeeded in that, taking over Germany after the Second World War to such an extent that they replaced everything that had been with their own allied and German version of it, using guilt for the war, for the concentration camps, for the deportation of Jews, etc., etc., with lies about gypsies and homosexuals too, and all foreigners, etc., etc. In other words, by giving Germans a totally substitute historical narrative, media, publishing, educational system, political parties, movies, and then television, etc., and making it illegal to speak positively about National Socialism, Adolf Hitler, the Third Reich, etc. So that that is what they did. And thus it is that up to today, the German state is the worst critic of all against its own past. 
everyone and everything connected to the Third Reich. Uh, you know, you don't find any any uh, other nation being more anti-Nazi and anti, uh, let's say, and clinging to the authorized version of World War II, etc., than the German government of today. And without your own state supporting you, you can get nowhere. Germans could get very far. There's a lot that could be done if the if their nation supported their efforts, but it does not. It's it's with totally with the enemy. So this takeover was totalitarian and deadly serious in its scope. Germany's new leaders had to accept all Allied demands in order to have a semblance of independence again. A new constitution, in quotes, was prepared that based the Federal Republic of Germany's legal existence on the findings of the Nuremberg military tribunals. Thus, the new Federal Republic of Germany, FGR, has never been a sovereign nation that can decide against what it has been de- what has been decided for it by its multiple conquerors. The only clout Germany as a nation has gained for itself over the years is its economic success due to the racial qualities of its people, which is why it was targeted for destruction to begin with. So the strengths of Germany are also what others, what the, what the Jews and the countries that they control fear and, and uh, want to hold down. So it's kind of a, a conundrum here where they want the strength, the, the Europe wants the strength of the German people and its economy, but at the same time, it can't allow Germany to get to go beyond the bounds or to get out of the ring that it's put it that it has been put in, and do anything uh, on its own. So Germany's economic strength, and I've said this many times before, is appreciated as long as it's in the service of the Anglo-American global order. And the same with its leadership. Its leadership has to be in the service of this order also. So the biggest problem is, then, that the German government is not on the side of the Germans. It's on the side of the Allies. Just imagine having a government that's on the side of those who defeated you. But they get around that by saying that Adolf Hitler's government was a criminal government and it was a despotic despotic rule forced on the German people because there were a few that didn't like it, but most most were happy with it. But they say that, you know, therefore they, they had to free Germany from that. So Germany is now, uh, should be grateful for being freed by the Allies and uh, being able to be a part of the democracy you know, the world democracies and so on, and has to do it. But it's stuck with this guilt and shame that is it is supposed to carry around and feel so that it will continue to do what these others want, want them to do. So this leads me to the two subjects for tonight's show. The first one is the repression of the criminal treatment of German women and children by American, British, and French troops from 1944 to 1947, mainly uh, during that time. The second will be the current status of the organization representing the 15 million ethnic Germans who were forced out of their homes in Eastern Europe in a death march to a much reduced German territory as refugees. 
So on to the first subject. The boy, it's been 8:23 already. How could how could that be happening? The latest example of this is the appearance of a new book by a German historian named Miriam Gebhardt, who hails from very close to where my ancestors came from in Baden. Uh, she's from Freiburg, which is south of the Black Forest, but my ancestors are from north of the Black Forest in the Kreisgau. But she is described as a highly regarded historian with several books to her credit before this one. She's a, she fits into the mainstream. She's not going out on the limb, but she seems to be going out on the limb a few times as far as uh, w- being a woman. Uh, she has written a, a well-received, I guess, biography of this woman whose last name is Schwarzer, who is a German, a German feminist. She wrote about her. Uh, she's not a bad feminist because I, I looked, I read about her, and uh, she's uh, mostly the ideas she has. I think are good, helpful for for women. Some in a couple areas she goes uh, further than I than I would approve of. But this Miriam Gebhard, who wrote this new book, has um, has come out now with another one that circles around women, and that is when the soldiers came, the rape of German women at the end of the Second World War. She calls that the the repressed crime. She mostly wants to bring out the rapes by Americans because that is what has not been talked about up till now. And some in a newspaper interview, she said some things such as uh, the false impression grew up after the war that German women gave themselves to Western soldiers because they brought with them things they desperately needed. Nylons, food, cigarettes, coffee. That's very true. They, they, the stories are, and always have been, that these women were quite willing to give sex to these American soldiers who were so nice, you know, so attractive and, and nice to be with. And because they had need of, they wanted special things like nylon stockings. You know, nobody needs nylons, but they might keep your legs warmer uh, if you don't have anything on your legs. That's true. Nobody needs cigarettes, but if you're a smoker, you do. And food and coffee, so mostly it was like special things that that they wanted to get, and and gave out that then therefore these uh, German women, because they lived in their times were so hard to say the least, they were willing to to prostitute themselves. And Miriam Gibhart also says the impression grew that there was no rape in the West, but rather a kind of prostitution grew up. Well, that's what I said, but in fact. Um, she says countless women were raped, with soldiers believing they could treat them as they wanted after bearing coveted gifts. Post-war society was hardly ready to differentiate between voluntary and forced sexual contact. She uh, And then added to the trauma of the Western victims was the shame suffered by the children they bore from their attackers. Their fathers were mostly unknown, and the women received no financial help at all. She said in parts of southern Germany, occupied by American troops, there were often what were called free nights, where soldiers were encouraged to abuse women at will for up to 48 hours at a time. This is from the journalist who wrote this, and I don't know if she actually says that there were off these happened often. There was uh, one place where it was happening, 
but uh, that might be a little incorrect there. And she says uh, that the uh, that the victims are relieved in their uh, relieved that their hardship is now coming to light. So this was all from the person who wrote the Daily Mail article, which happens to be that horrible Alan Hall. However, there was also something in Der Spiegel by Klaus Wiegrefe titled Post-War Rapes Were Americans As Bad as the Soviets. And I'm going to read this. It's probably easier just to read it. He writes, In the popular imagination, American GIs in post-war Germany were well-liked and well-behaved. In the popular imagination, remember. But a new book claims that U.S. soldiers raped up to 190,000 women. U.S. soldiers at the end of World War II. Is there any truth to the controversial claim? says the soldiers arrived at dusk. They forced their way into the house and tried to drag the two women upstairs. But Catherine W. and her 18-year-old daughter, Charlotte, were able to escape. The soldiers didn't give up easily, though. They began searching all the houses in the area and ultimately found the two women in a neighbor's closet shortly before midnight. The men pulled them out and threw them onto two beds. The crime of the six soldiers, six of them, ultimately committed, took place in March 1945, shortly before the end of World War II. The girl cried for help, Mama, Mama, but none arrived. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of German women experienced a similar fate, but that's all across, that's including from the Russians. But she says this, but, uh, this case was different. This was not, in the Soviet, this was not ca- carried out by Soviet troops. These rapists were soldiers from the United States of America, and the crime took place in Sprendlingen, a village near the Rhine River in the West. Okay, by the end of the war, some 1.6 million American troops had advanced deep into Germany, ultimately meeting the advancing Soviets at the Elbe River. In the U.S., those who freed Europe from what they called the plague of the Nazis came to be known as the greatest generation. In the U.S., that is. And Germans, too, developed a positive image of their occupiers. So it said, cool soldiers who handed out chewing gum to the children and wowed the German Frauleins with jazz and nylons. But is that image consistent with reality? German historian Miriam Gebhardt, well known in Germany for her book about Alice Schwarzer. That's uh, the leading feminist in Germany, Alice Schwarzer and the so-called feminist movement, has now published a new volume casting doubt on the accepted version of America's role in German post-war history. Uh, the work, which came out in on Monday, makes, takes a closer look at the rape of German women by all four victorious powers at the end of World War II. In particular, though, her views on the behavior of American GIs are likely to raise eyebrows. Gebhardt believes that members of the U.S. military raped as many as 190,000 German women by the time West Germany regained sovereignty in 1955, so-called sovereignty. So that's from 45 to 55, ten, over 10 years, 190,000 rapes. With most of the assaults taking place in the months immediately following the U.S. invasion of Nazi Germany, the author bases her claims in large part on reports kept by Bavarian priests in the summer of uh, 
1945. The Archbishop of Munich and Freising had asked Catholic clergy to keep records on the Allied advance, and the Archdiocese published excerpts from its archive a few years ago. Only a few years ago they published this. Michael um, Merksmuller, a priest in the village of Ramsau, Ramsau, maybe, near uh, Berchtesgaden, wrote on July 20th, 1945, for example, eight girls and women raped, some of them in front of their parents. Father Andreas Weingand from Haag under Amper, a tiny village located just north of where the Munich airport is today, wrote on July 25, 1945, the saddest event during the advance were three rapes, one on a married woman, one on a single woman, and one on a spotless girl of 16 and a half. They were committed by heavily drunken Americans. And a lot of these rapes were after these soldiers had been drinking. And then they had no, they, they, they had no uh, reserve about them. They just went after it. You know, they, they became brutes. And the same was true with, with the Russians and the Mongols coming in from the east, but also in the, uh, in the, in the west. And they, they didn't stop them from drinking. So what their behavior then was kind of predictable, maybe, for some of them. Father Alwas Schimmel from Moosburg wrote on August 1, 1945, By order of the military government, a list of all residents and their ages must be nailed to the door of each house. The results of this decree are not difficult to imagine. Seventeen girls or women were brought to the hospital, having been, been sexually abused once or several times. So they, the military government ordered that they needed to post a list of who lived in each house and their ages. So then, you know, they went and looked for the young, the young women. Uh, their soldiers did. Now, in this report, of these 17, the youngest was seven years old, and the oldest was a woman of 69. The reports led book author Gebhardt to compare the behavior of the U.S. Army with the violent excesses perpetrated by the Red Army in the eastern half of the country, where brutality, gang rapes, and incidents of looting have dominated the public perception of the Soviet occupation. Gephardt, however, says that the rapes committed in Upper Bavaria show that things weren't much different in post-war Germany, South and West. That's, again, you know, I say again, that, that's where my family's from, and the southwestern part is where they, I guess, they crossed. A lot of them were, were there, and so these, these German women there got the worst of it. And I was thinking, you know, I probably, uh, I've thought before about uh, having a, you know, distant cousins still living there, thinking, I wonder uh, if some of them, because there was a lot, that's where the the black, the, the Negro soldiers were too, doing all that raping. I wonder if some of my uh, distant cousins might be part African for that reason. Anyway, he says the historian also believes that the U.S. soldiers were horrified by the crimes committed by the Germans. Now, this is the reasoning that's given, that they were told and shown pictures and sometimes shown uh, places that about the, the uh, crimes committed by the, the German uh, soldiers and the Wehrmacht and the SS. And this made them feel, made them, why they should be embittered, I don't know, but this made them embittered uh, and, uh, and 
wanting to strike out at these Germans. And so they struck out at the women as though they had some sort of uh, justification for it. This is a justification that's given. However, we know that uh, Eisenhower and the Allied Control Commission and so on played this stuff up and invented a lot of it so that the German people could be harshly punished. And so these these so-called crimes by the Germans were, were never committed. They, they weren't guilty of these crimes that they were being punished for. Furthermore, along with what they thought the Germans had done to these other people um, and all the death and destruction that they had caused, that they saw a relatively high degree of prosperity in the country. Well, the, the greatest prosperity was probably in the West and even in the Southwest. Because there's a lot of uh, agricultural uh, agriculture going on there, and there was not as much uh, damage there. So you know they got they got a wrong impression at that too. But of course their own their own military was trying to give them very wrong impressions. And then the propaganda at the time conveyed the idea to them that German women were attracted to them and uh, really wanted you know really were waiting for them, further fueling their macho fantasies. So uh, let's see here. Now, I think what's really interesting I want to bring out is that the thinking about this all all along and certainly today is, is this idea of uh, is this debate between uh, what, what kind of relationship existed between these soldiers and these German women. And uh, many historians are taking a more critical look at the behavior of the American military during the days immediately preceding and following the end of World War II in Germany, um, they have found uh, incidents involving, or maybe just coming out with them, involving GIs plundering churches, murdering Italian civilians, killing German prisoners of war and raping women, as we're talking about, as they advanced, even across France they were doing that. Despite such findings, the Americans are still considered to have been relatively disciplined compared to the Soviets and the French. But Gephardt, he says, this writer says, is hoping to challenge that. Still, you know, how much the the reports compiled by the Catholic Church in Bavaria only add up, he says, to a few hundred cases. So how did she arrive at the shocking figure of 190,000 rapes? And this is what she's being criticized for. But what she did was to extrapolate. She made the assumption that 5% of the war children, that is the illegitimate children born to unmarried women in West Germany and West Berlin by the mid-1950s were the product of rape. 5% of them, she figured, must, must have been the product of rape. So that makes for a total of 1,900 children of American fathers. So uh, that's that's the number. But then she further assumes that on average there are 100 incidents of rape for each birth. And that leads her to the figure of 190,000 rape victims. Well, is it unreasonable to assume that you have uh, you, there would be 100 incidents of rape for each birth? That seems a little high to me. I, w- I wouldn't go that high if I just off the top of my head. I would I would uh, understand that criticism. Now people are saying that that doesn't seem hardly plausible, and uh, she doesn't have enough other evidence 
But she does have a lot of, there is a lot of evidence of very bad behavior by Americans. And, and another uh, previous to her, going back a little ways, there's a U.S. criminologist and professor, Robert Lilly, or Lily, L-I-L-L-Y, who wrote a book, I can't think of the name of it right now, who examined rape cases prosecuted by American military courts. So, you know, the, some of them were prosecuted. And he arrived at a, but, you know, how this would only be a part of them. He arrived at a number of 11,000 serious sexual assaults committed by November 1945, and then they would have continued on after that. So uh, I think if he was uh, going by what was known and what was recorded there, that he's got to have a very low number. And he had 11,000 by November 45. So uh, I don't I don't think this uh, Miss Gebhardt can be uh, just dismissed uh, altogether by what she's saying because there's always a whole lot more unrecorded than there are recorded. Anyway, okay, here's here's something that, that's on record. A complaint filed by a hotelier in Munich on May 31st, 1945. May 31st, 1945. Reported, this hotelier po- reported that U.S. soldiers had commandeered a few rooms at her hotel. This is in Munich. And that four women were running around completely naked and were exchanged several times. And she questions, was that really voluntary, that these women were up there with these soldiers? Even if it isn't likely that Americans committed 190,000 sexual crimes, this writer says it remains true that for post-war victims of rape, which was undeniably a mass phenomenon at the end of World War II, there is no culture of memory, no public recognition, much less an apology from the perpetrators. And today, 70 years after the end of the war, unfortunately, it doesn't look as though that situation will soon change. And that's the same for everything about that war. There's no no apologies, no recognition, no memory of what actually happened aloud. And uh, this Gebhardt woman was interviewed as many elderly German women as she could who experienced this back then and talked to them and got their stories. But, of course, you're going to have everyone's not wanting to accept it. Now, she is a, a, a well-known historian already in Germany. She's uh, middle-aged, and she's she's got a reputation to uphold. She's a professor in a university. Uh, she's not going to just write a bunch of nonsense, but she, uh, because she's a woman, see, she wants to do things like this for women, for the women. And not, not that she wants to make it up, but I can understand. She's, you know, this gives her, uh, gives her more feeling, more sense of that she's accomplishing something that means something to her. And so I don't think that she would just go out and lie about it. And she's very open about how she reached, she came to her number of 190,000. So you can say, well, that's not possible, or it is possible, or, or anywhere in between. I think she's, uh, she should be listened to. But now we have uh, an article about this in the Telegraph, UK, and it's by Anthony, or it's really Anthony, Anthony Beevor. Now, Anthony Beevor crops up everywhere about this subject. Wherever I look, they're they're consulting Anthony Beevor because he's one of the great, according to the British, one of their great authorities on the Second World War, and he's a historian course 
And he says, well, he, he dismisses it. He says it's almost impossible to come up with figures, but I think to say there were hundreds of thousands is a great exaggeration. If she's doing it on the basis of illegitimate children, that's ludicrous. There was a huge amount of voluntary sex. How does he know? Where was he? There were vast numbers of cases of genuine fraternization. Well, the Americans had a law against fraternization, rules against it. Many young women were hanging around outside the gates of American camps, he said. And he says the most notorious instances of rape by Western Allied forces were by French troops during the sack of Stuttgart. Well, that's when the African troops were allowed to go into Stuttgart and rape everybody, every woman that they could get their hands on. That's another horrible story, which does, you know, is a part of this whole thing, but the worst part. Now, um, well, he's got, he just doesn't want to go along with it. And, you know, I also had a question. Is if one woman or girl was raped multiple times, which certainly was the case with the Russians and was would have been the case elsewhere too, then how do you count that? How many rapes is that? Well, you're just going to count one woman raped, no matter how many times she was raped. I went through, I found a site called Pictures history.blogspot.com and it had a page on rape during World War II and there's some very good, all documented here, I mean all, all sourced, very well sourced, about the, the rapes and about Americans and British and French. And it's John Dos Passos, a, a famous uh, American fiction writer, or I don't know if he's all fiction actually, but a, a a writer, said in Life magazine on, on June 7, 1946, that lust, whiskey, and plunder was the reward for the soldier, or a reward. And another, a soldier wrote in Time magazine on November 12, 1945, it, it showed up. He, uh, the quote is, a lot of normal American families would be horrified if they knew how utterly insensitively our boys behaved here. And you know, it's not just with rapes it's with the whole way that they behaved in germany coming in as though uh they were some great warrior conquerors which of course most of them weren't at all and just taking everything the americans were famous for grabbing souvenirs the american soldiers they just took everything anything they could they thought that would make a good souvenir for them a lot of them who had access to hitler's places where he where he had lived uh, really went crazy taking things. And they were allowed to do that because Americans were not strict disciplinarians with their troops as much as they want to say that they were. They were not. They encouraged them to have a good time. The uh, An army sergeant wrote, quote, and our army and British army had their share of looting and rape. Although these crimes are not typical for our troops, but their percentage is high enough to give our army a sinister reputation so that we too can be called an army of tyrants. An Italian survivor of American bombing notes that black U.S. troops stationed in Naples with the permission of his superiors had free access to the poor, hungry, and humiliated Italian women. The result of these interracial rape and sexual slavery was the, prod was the production of generations of pathetic children. And according to an Associated Press report on September 12, 1945, entitled German-American Marriages Were Prohibited. Uh, now, here's, 
Here's what the American military comes out with. Uh, on September 12, 1945, they, they put out a report. Well, they put out a report and the Associated Press picked it up and published it said that German-American marriages were prohibited, that the government of Franklin Roosevelt has advised its soldiers that marriage with the inferior German girls were absolutely forbidden, but those who had children out of wedlock from German women, whose husbands or suitors were dead, captured, or imprisoned in concentration camps, that is, if they didn't have any German man around, could count on allowance. According to Time magazine, dated 17 September 1945, the government supplied the soldiers some 50 million condoms a month with picturesque illustrations of their use. Well, who are they going to use these condoms with? Of course, they're, they're telling themselves, they're, they're fantasizing, the whole uh, military government is fantasizing that these German women want to have sex, so our soldiers might as well have a good time. That's what they told themselves is they're handing out 50 million condoms a month to their soldiers. And the soldiers were told, it is said, quote, teach these Germans a lesson and spend a nice time. There you go. Again, just like with Ilya Ehrenberg, teach these Germans a lesson. And they certainly wanted to do that. They wanted to subjugate the Germans totally, completely, and including the women. To go on, black rapes, okay. According to testimony given in the U.S. Senate, July 17, 1945, when the colonial free French troops under the command of Eisenhower, most of them Africans, were stationed in the German city of Stuttgart, they herded German women into the subway and raped about 2,000 of them. This is testimony given in the U.S. Senate in July 1945. And this, this was under the command of Eisenhower. And they know all this, but what's done? Nothing is done. Uh, in Stuttgart alone, troops under Eisenhower's command raped more women in one week than the German troops raped in France for the entire four years. Well, they keep saying that German troops were raping. I imagine a few did so. But I don't know if this person has any exact facts. I'm not going to say that no Germans ever raped a woman. But it is a fact that all of all the, it goes on to say, it is a fact of all the major belligerents in World War II, rape and looting by German troops was the lowest. And it was so low as practically non-existent, if you ask me. The fact is that the level of rape by the German army is the, in the occupied territories was even lower than the level of rape by the American troops stationed on home soil. So once, once Americans... Uh, got inducted into the army and or the navy or something and put on the uniform even when they were still on home soil they started raping so rape is is something of an american thing much more than it is certainly of a german thing it never was a german thing ever oh and and this is well known uh that this is a london international news story dated 31st january 1946 but as, as we've known for a long time, or I read about it a long time ago, when the wives of American soldiers arrived in Germany, and they let a lot of these soldiers' wives come, I don't think privates, but maybe uh, officers' wives, when they arrived in Germany, they gave them special uh, military uniforms to wear. And the reason was is because they didn't want the U.S. soldiers, the, the low cl lower-class soldiers, 
to uh, mistake these officers' wives for the German Fräulein. That's how they spell it here, Fräulein, Fräulein, for the German girls. And that's, that was known that that's, that's why they had these uh, wives wearing military uniforms of some sort. Now, um, I have to pick and choose here. Some of this might be kind of repetitive, so I can... This thing about the, the blacks. Here, I'll, I'll read this quote here from... No, well, this is in, in Wikipedia. After the fighting moved on to German soil for the Americans, this is, this is about the U.S. military, there was a good deal of rape by combat troops and those immediately following them. The incidents varied between unit and unit according to the attitude of the commanding officer. In some cases, offenders were identified, tried by court-martial, and punished. The Army legal branch was reticent, but admitted that for brutal or perverted sexual offenses against German women, some soldiers had to be shot, particularly if they happened to be Negroes. So at that time, they were willing to shoot a few Negroes because what they did was so terrible, but they didn't really want to punish the, the white soldier. Yet I know for a fact, this goes on to say, that many women were raped by white Americans. No action was taken against the culprits. In one sector, a report went round that a certain very distinguished army commander made the wisecrack, quote, copulation without conversation does not constitute fraternization. Well, that actually was a uh, common sort of a saying among the soldiers because they had a non-fraternization policy that the uh, uh, that the American under Eisenhower uh, instituted immediately no no fraternization with the with people here with the natives according to the uh, uh, for the soldiers but they said they decided that if they copulated with a woman without any conversation that's not con that's not fraternization and they actually tried to do that then to, so that they were thought they were keeping within the the law. This is from a book by Osmar White, post, uh, published by Cambridge and New York Cambridge University Press, called uh, "An Eyewitness Report of Germany, 1945." And typical victimization with sexual assault by drunken American personnel marching through occupied territory involved threatening a German family with weapons, forcing one or more women to engage in sex, and putting the entire family out on the street afterward. This is from Peter Trivgers in a book published by New York University. As in the eastern section, sector of the occupation, the number of rapes peaked in 1945, but a high degree, a high rate of violence against the German and Austrian populations by the Americans lasted at least into the first half of 1946, with five cases of dead German women found in American barracks in May and June of 1946 alone. Now, uh, there's an interesting debate here that I want to get to, but I want to say that there's some stuff about uh, the British, too. And, of course, the French were terrible. The French were the worst. Uh, they were so, they had so much hatred for the end and uh, competitiveness and so on with, with the Germans that they got carried away. And according to Norman Neymark, French Moroccan troops matched the behavior of Soviet troops when it came to rape, in particularly in particular in the early occupation 
of Baden and Württemberg. See, see, I, I take that personally. That's that's where my family came from. So uh, they they got it the worst, except for the Berlin and those in the in the east. Uh, there's a woman called uh, Elizabeth Heinemann at the University of Iowa, and she has written some things. And she has argued that in post-war Germany, especially in West Germany, the wartime rape stories became an essential part of political discourse and that the rape of German women, along with the expulsion of Germans from the East and Allied occupation, had been universalized in an attempt to situate the German population on the whole as victims. Uh, She's saying that some people were arguing in the in the political discourse that Germans were trying to universalize what took place in an attempt to make them make themselves on the whole as victims, not just some people victims, not just say these women who were raped as victims, but all Germans as victims. And this became a, a debate between the, the left and and others who are not on the left. And this discourse was wholly discredited by the late 1960s. Since the 1970s, from the 1970s on, the German leftists conducted politics focused on critical investigation of the Nazi past, the older generation's unwillingness to face that past, and their tendency to portray themselves as victims rather than as perpetrators, particularly of the Holocaust. Uh, therefore, it is argued the frequently iterated claim that the wartime rapes had been surrounded by decades of silence is perhaps not correct. Um, this is written very badly. I don't know why. I may have had to use a Google Translate. But uh, what, what I get, what what I find very interesting in this is that the idea that that they're not going to allow. Germans to be victims. The left is not going to allow it. And the Jews either, of course. They never mention the Jews, of course. Let's call it left, the actually communists after the war. And particularly after some time went by, once you got into the 70s, started in the 60s. But there was, there was, the Germans were talking about it. German women were talking about it. They weren't they weren't talking. They weren't trying to do anything about it. Everybody knew that it had taken place. What had taken place, and they knew what they had uh, experienced and suffered. But they also knew that nobody, there was no sympathy for them. But then the uh, leftists tried to um, rid of any any sympathy whatsoever for Germans by pointing to their Nazi past and saying all how what they deserved, everything they got. You know the whole thing we hear all the time. They deserve it. You know, they're the perpetrators. And if they're the perpetrators, as is said by the Nuremberg Tribunal, which is the law of the land and accepted by everyone, so they're the perpetrators. They can't be the victims, too. So they just would always stop any kind of sympathy for Germans for what had happened and shut it up and and so on. That's how I see it. And uh, this Heinemann writes that... um, A woman who lived through that time attended a lecture and confronted the accuser speaker who was accusing the uh, Germans of, you know, being perpetrators and so on. And and he was a German. And she asked him the question, when were you born? And he answered 1946, which which was, of course, after the war. 
And she says, it's always you who did not live through this time, who accuse us of not confronting our past. That was the thing that was going on then. Um, I'm sorry, this is a little jumbled here, but uh, the thing that was going on was that, oh, you Germans, you're re refusing to confront your past. You still haven't confronted all the bad things you did. You are the perpetrators. You want to present yourself as victims. You're failing to confront the past. And this was what pushed the German government into overdoing the confrontation of their past and and uh, being willing to pay out all this money and admit all these crimes and do all this stuff. Whereas in the beginning, they were not ready to do that, and they, they weren't really doing it. They were just trying to live and get their country back together to some degree as best they could, and they didn't have time for all this other stuff, um, you know, all this political debate. So th this is what this man was doing. You know, you're not, you haven't confronted your past. Uh, and this woman said, those people who didn't live then don't understand that we were too busy staying alive, finding shelter and food to have time for that, and so on and so on. Uh, she said it better than that. But in any case, um, this this is one of the tricks and the worst things that, are, that have been done to the Germans, is to not allow them to have their memories and to have uh, at least consideration for their suffering and what was done to them. And only that they are, they anything bad that was done to them, whether it be the rapes, whether it be the expulsions, well, what do you expect? Whoa, how should they be treated? They deserved it. You know, they were all part of this evil thing that happened. And of course, as uh, we know, the most evil of all, the Holocaust, is a big lie. So all of this has been done to prevent the Germans ever from rising and becoming the the threat again that they were back then to the British and Americans and so on, becoming the the people that they that they are. They've had to be held down, but not so much that they can't be used as sort of like uh animals livestock are used to for the farmer to help him enrich himself. But they themselves are not allowed to decide what it is that they will do and will not do. Then I went on this uh forum where they were talking about this book by Gephardt and it's a World War II forum called the uh, URL www2f.com World War II forum.com is what it stands for and and they had the same kind of big resistance going on they didn't they didn't hadn't read the book but they were just told about it and so then they all had their opinion and uh, they just don't want to believe it they don't. They don't believe it. They think she's wrong, and uh, that's a woman for you, and so on. And this one says, "I'm sure there were some rapes, but the sort of mass thing being described is probably due to not wanting to admit, even to themselves, that they traded sex for food for survival in a hungry time. Certainly, they were. Some of them were reduced to that. But is that is that right? In '45." And even into 46, the Germans were being starved. They were being given nothing. And there's there's plenty they could have been given. And then when the uh, aid came through more big time, the uh, the Marshall Plan and, and before that, um, what's that president? Um, can't think of his name. His, what, he brought a bunch of aid to Europe. But most of it went to France, Belgium, even Britain. And very little got to Germany. 
And that is that was not known because in in the United States they were told that oh we are we're helping these Germans we're such great people in spite of what they did you know we're humanitarians and we're helping them but very little got to Germany and they they were starving they were really they really were starving and they were uh, hanging around in, in the dumps searching around for junk for crap to eat you know and uh, children were starving anyway the um, this other guy says, I'm putting it down as revisionist. There's no real evidence beyond hearsay, and most of the alleged perpetrators are dead and can't reply. You know, and this person, I thought, he's putting it down as as revisionist. There's no real evidence beyond hearsay. And yet I'll bet he believes in the Holocaust. And I bet he believes everything that all those, uh, because all those people said so. And that's all hearsay, but he doesn't think about it that way. I'll bet you anything. Or he wouldn't be talking like this if he, if he didn't. They all say, well, you know, these people were um, defeated and uh, they they had to do these things to get enough to eat and so on. And so, well, it's all understandable. They're never going to blame, not a single one of them blames the soldiers for what they did or the military government. If I had plenty of time, I'd just read them all, but I don't think I'm going to. Just the usual kind of denial. All right, I'm going to put on a, a very short piece of music for a break, and then I, I will uh, come back and talk about the Expelli story. And I'm going to play SS song, Ben Allah and Troy there. It's only a little over two minutes, ladies and gentlemen. So I'll, we'll be back very shortly. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. 
And this is Carolyn Yeager on the Heretics Hour on Monday, March 9th. I'm sucking on a piece of dark chocolate. I'm going to switch over to uh, other topics for tonight's show. And that is the Federation of Expellees has just, oh, it was actually last year in November, but they voted in a new president. And Erica Steinbach, who many of you may be familiar with her or her name, heard her name, Erica Steinbach was the head of this federation for quite a number of years and was controversial because she was she aggressively pushed for a recognition of their plight and also of their continuing plight and wanting to keep that alive. She had the friendship of uh, Angela Merkel, the chancellor. She's in that party, uh, the uh, Christian Social Union, which is which is currently in power. And she had, and she she earned the anima, the hatred of the Polish people, of the Poles, and the Polish government, because they were trying to say what could be and what could not be done, particularly with this uh, museum uh, or uh, kind of a museum memorial in remember in honor of the uh, 15 million ethnic Germans who fled or were expelled from. Uh, parts of Central and Eastern Europe after uh, after the war and up until up until the 1980s, but they had it differently than the ones who were kicked out right at that time. And even before the war ended, uh, they were they were truly terrorized. These people were truly being terrorized in a way that the Jews were never terrorized in Germany. They were never treated in the way that these ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia and in Poland and in other places in the Balkans and so on were absolutely terrorized. And a lot of them were sent to uh, Siberia, I mean, yeah, to the gulags in uh, northern Russia and died there. Some of them were released after quite a number of years of hard labor. And uh, a lot of them died. A lot of them were murdered. A lot of them died along the way. So it's given as an official total that there were from 13 to 16 million. And yet in some of these things I've read, uh, they they go to the lowest number of all, and they say it was 13 million, when most of the time uh, people average it out and call it 15 million. So the the uh, an honest number to give for these uh these ethnic germans that were that were treated this way was uh 15 million and definitely 2 million died from it so that's pretty big uh pretty big trauma a pretty big shoa pretty big disaster of befalling these people but once again the idea is well what do you expect it's their own fault they deserved it they shouldn't have gone out there well the fact is, of course, uh, they like to say that, oh, a lot of these uh, Germans came there after 1939 and moved into these eastern territories and pushed the uh, the inhabitants out. They were pushed further east or arrested or something. Well, very small number, very small proportion of Germans from other places moved into Poland and uh, <clears throat> the cities of uh what you call Western Poland, and, uh, and into Czechoslovakia and so on. Most of them, by far the vast majority, 
had been living there for generations and were very valuable citizens in those in those uh, areas and 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 uh, productive and contributed greatly and they were uh, they were wanted they were wanted there except for the people who uh, like the the leftists the communists well to get started here what what has happened is I started to say that okay I'll say this when these uh, when these uh, expellees, as they're called, and and the word is kind of kind of long and sort of hard for me to pronounce, but not I can pronounce it now, but I can't just roll it off my tongue uh, over and over again. But they're the Vertribienen, Vertribienen. Anyway, the Bund der Heimat Vertribienen was the first organization that was formed in Germany in 1950. After they had all gotten there and they realized there, you know, there were so many of them from all over and they were in, in the southern part, uh, at that time, southern Germany. And they, they, they created this, uh, what in English is League of Expellees and Deprived of Rights because they were very, very conscious at that time and very unhappy that they had to, they were kicked out of their homes and their property and they owned uh, farms and land and businesses and, and factories and so on. And they were terrorized by these uh, communist uh, partisans. There was mostly the partisans that were allowed to run loose there. And they, well, they would, you know, strike fear in them and come in their homes and tear everything up and threaten them and kill if anybody said anything. They, if they wanted to rape a woman and the husband tried to intervene or a son or something, they'd kill him. So it was all very terrible. And then, then they were told, uh, once they had, there was no uh, German uh, Wehrmacht uh, support for them anymore, they were told that they had to leave. And they had to leave suddenly, you know, very quickly. And they could only take such and such amount that weighed so much. So that's why they look, so many of them look, when you see pictures of them on the roads and so on, they look like they're very well dressed, like, boy, these must have been wealthy people. Well, they put on their best clothes. Because they couldn't take very much. They had a little bag or a bundle, and they would have to think about what was most important, and they put on their very best clothes, so they would have those instead of old clothes. And uh, they were thrown out of there. And at the time that they got to Germany, those who managed to get there in one piece very much had in their mind that they wanted to go return. You know, they, they thought they would be able to return later. They hoped they could. Uh, they They wanted to go back to their to their homes and to that land that they had always always lived in and they loved. But they never were allowed to return. But that was their whole thing was, uh, you know, so that's why they call themselves deprived of rights. They were deprived of their rights and they wanted uh, laws passed to help them out. Uh, they wanted Germany to help them out to, to get, to, you know, see that they could eventually get back there. Well, of course, as we know, Germany was not ever in a position to, help any of its people, really, and wasn't going to. So in 1957, that first organization was disbanded for whatever reason, and they formed a new one called just the Federation of Expellees. And the first president was Hans Kruger, who happened to be, to live in that part of the world, and he was a former uh, National Socialist judge and activist. And after the war, he was a West German politician for the Christian Democratic Union. 
and a member of parliament from 1957 to 1965 because he had been a very important man and, and a very good judge and a fair-minded man, but he was involved in the government of his own country. You know, here's the thing that I might as well say right now, that they want all Germans to believe and accept that any German who uh, was a, a national socialist at the time or continued with any sympathy for national socialism after 45, mid-45, is somebody totally uh, unqualified to do anything and must be uh, treated the way that all Nazis are treated today, you know, or all neo-Nazis, whatever, as as completely, uh, you must must shun these people and don't give, don't allow them in, don't allow them to do anything. But a lot of them were at that time, early on, because they were the capable and competent people, and they were good people, like this Kruger was. So he, even in the new government of uh, Ludwig Erhard. He served as federal minister for displaced persons, refugees, and war victims for four months. And that was from in uh, 1963 and 1964. And then he was denounced as being a former National Socialist judge and a member of the National Socialist Party. And a big furor was done up in order to get rid of him. And he had to he stepped down from the chancellor's cabinet and every other position that he had including he was no longer uh, the uh, head of this of this Federation of Expellies. And he was, uh, in the Federation of Expellies, he was succe- succeeded by Wenzel Jacks in 1964. That was, that was the end of the line for, for Hans Kruger. Now, Wenzel Jacks, Turns out, I know about him, he was active in in Prague and Czechoslovakia as as an ethnic German who was very pro-Czechoslovakia. He was very loyal. That was his country, you know, and that was all right, but he was known to be not violently anti-Nazi, but not friendly at all, basically anti-National Socialist rather than pro. And so it was safe to elect him to be the head of this organization. But he died two years after that, so he he didn't last very long. And then they had to find another one. But this organization went on. And in 1991, the West German government passed several laws dealing with German expellees. The most notif- notable of these is the law of return. Uh, well, that was one, though, that granted any ethnic German the right to come back to Germany, to come and live in Germany. So that was a German law for Germans. But whatever that Germany might have laws they might have passed didn't have any power in the new uh, Poland, Republic of Poland, or or the uh, Czech Republic. So that didn't didn't do any good. But they wanted the the German government to help to uh, stand behind them, to be for them, to help them, uh, you know, try to get the right to get their property back or to move back to their property or to get some compensation for their property. Um, I don't know what all the what all the efforts were that they were doing, but they had not given up on that, even though many uh, many other people thought that would could never take place, but they hadn't given up on it. Now, in the present day, you know, the CDU and the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, which was always uh, anti-Hitler for the most part, but not they quieted down and they just stayed 
stayed quiet when he was in power. And as soon as uh, it was o- that war was over, well, then they came out strong, you know, as the ones who who uh, should be running the country now, along with the new the new way of thinking. And they basically did. But they favored improved relations with Central and Eastern Europe. See, and that this is where the whole thing is. As soon as the the particularly Poland and and uh, Czech Republic, but others too, were just completely closed to the uh, Germans ever coming back or getting any part of anything that they had there and made out like they they were there illegally or something, and um, they didn't owe them anything. And of course, the Benish decree is. Um, says that for it's a, a law in Czech Republic that uh, I forget now how it goes. I should have looked that up before the show. But anyway, uh, they're they're completely close to that. And they got upset because uh, Erika Steinbach in the uh, 2000s and late 90s and so on, when she became president, her family had been in, in Silesia and they had property and so on, and she was more uh, uh, argumentative with the Poles. The Poles really hated her, and the Germans would not. The German Germans mainly were more sympathetic and sensitive to the Poles and the Czechs than they were to, particularly the Poles, than they were to their fellow Germans. And so I've got here that the uh, how the Poles operate. I say, <laughs> in February 2009, the Polish newspaper. Polska wrote that over one-third of the Federation top officials were former Nazi activists and based this on an article published by the German magazine Der Spiegel in 2006. So that's how that's what they use all the time. Uh, that's how they get that's how they shut Germans up by calling them Nazis. If you had if you were formerly a member of the party or had a position in even far out, you know, even uh, not really close in, but uh, with the with the National Socialist government, if you did any work for them, you're like a former Nazi, and now you should not be able to do anything uh, at all. And that's that's how they handle that. So they're always hunting for to find out if people had any Nazi connections. And the uh, the German paper, the Frankfurter Zeitung, wrote that Der Spiegel said this was not in respect to the Federation of Expellees, but in respect to a predecessor organization that was dissolved in 1957. That was that first one. So the Poles are not honest in the way that they accuse Nazis being involved in, in these organizations. And the Federation uh, has always been accused of uh, having Nazi roots. And, of course, that first organization, the man who was the head of it, as I already told you about Hans Kruger, he did, but he, was a, he wasn't he was a bad person. Well, I don't think any of them were bad persons, but but that that's, that's what they keep pointing to. And here's an, another thing. The large Polish daily newspaper, Rej Polita, reported that during uh, BDV meetings, that's his Federation of Expellees, in 2003, uh, publications using hate language to describe Poles butchering Germans were available for sale as recordings, as were recordings of Waffen-SS marches on compact discs, um, including those marches that were, according to the Poles, glorifying the invasion of Poland. Well, so there you go. You know, you've got uh, you've got Germans at their at their 
meetings and people are trying to sell things to them who are coming to the meetings. And they are, uh, some of them are about what the Poles did to the Germans who are living there. And these, uh, maybe uh, some of these people by 2003 are descendants of the original expellees. And so they might need to be reminded of things like that. But the Poles are called that hate language and lies, you know, which there weren't lies because they were doing that. But they don't want that to be there. And they, they just like the Jews. Just like the Jews, if you say anything that is reflects badly on Jews, well, that's hate speech. The same difference there. The Federation denied official responsibility for these people who were at these meetings distributing materials. They thought that they should they should have been more active in that in keeping them out. And then they talk about how big it is. Well, they claim to have 1.3 million members, which is said to be about half that actually that they don't really have that many actual members. But things like that, this uh, goes on. But I want to talk now about the checks a minute. Um, Marcus, who writes comment on my site every so often, he he wrote uh, on March 1st that the Sudeten German Umbrella Group, that's the one we're talking uh, talking about, gave up their claims to get their property back and their rights to be the rightful owners of that land and that the Czech president replied that this is necessary for good relations. Sudeten, the Sudetans were in uh, in Czechoslovakia, and the Silesians were up in Poland. So they're they're both uh, they're they're both here. They're both involved in this. But there's more uh, more Sudeten Germans, I think, than Silesian Germans. So you know he's complaining about it. But I looked for that, and I think that's just the story. That's kind of uh, that goes back a couple of months when this Baron Fabritius was elected. So I, I want to go into that a little bit. But first I want to just mention something else that this Czech Republic, pre- current president of the Czech Republic, Milos Zeman, or if that's how it's pronounced, but it's Z-E-M-A-N, his last name, Zeman, just last Monday, he gave a speech in, uh, he was in Washington, D.C., he gave a speech in Washington, D.C. to the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APEC, to an APEC conference. In that speech, he urged the global community to show solidarity with the Jewish people and Israel. Well, of course, the government of Germany does the same thing. So, you know, I can't say that, you know, I can't make that much out of this. But he said, now we all must say, I am a Jew. He told the packed auditorium of all these Jews. And, of course, they loved it. They're applauding. And he says, uh, and then he said it in in Hebrew. And he says, of course, your discrimination is our discrimination. Your victims are our victims. You see the solidarity there uh, between the Jews and the Czechs, and it also goes for the Poles, against any who would have any uh, whiff still on them of, Nazism, of anything reflecting back to the Third Reich, which is completely unacceptable. They are the perpetrators, let's remember. They are the perpetrators, and they cannot be the victims. So there. then I came across a recent article about this. Someone sent me from the Wall Street Journal, and uh, the title of it is Controversial German Expellees Group Takes New Tech 
And this is really pretty sickening because they got, as I said in the beginning, they got this new president, Erica Steinbach, stepped down. She probably wanted to because she's been in there a long time. And she was talking about stepping down several years ago, as I recall. But she just did it last November in the uh, organization. She had a lot of supporters in the organization, and then she had those who didn't support her so much. But uh, they knew that she was working hard for their interests, but it was the Poles who were continually complaining about her. They just hated her. And so this article was written by Andrea Thomas for the Wall Street Journal, and she says, once again, as the world celebrates the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, some Germans are casting a fresh look at an often forgotten consequence of the conflict. During and after the war, some 13 million, see they used the, the number 13, ethnic Germans were deported from their ancestral homes in Central and Eastern Europe to an uncertain future in their shrunken country. The issue still reverberates. Over the weekend, a group representing Germans forced out of the region known as the Sudeten, now part of the Czech Republic, formally dropped their demands for the return of lands. They never did that all the way up until now, just a week ago. They finally did that. And they did that because that's the new president program. She writes, now the Expelli's main lobby group, which over decades has acquired a reputation as a bastion of nationalist and arch-conservative views, is trying to refashion itself as a voice for other refugees at a time when fast-rising immigration and a sharp increase in the number of asylum seekers has unleashed a backlash in Germany. Whoa, what to make of this? You know, now this group that has been speaking out for German uh, interests of these uh, ethnic Germans from the East is now going to speak out and take up the case for asylum seekers to, to Germany. And who are these people? These are people, foreign people from all over the place. Well, they're, right now, there's a lot of, uh, I was calling them Bosnians, but they're not Bosnians. And now I can't think of the name of them again right away. They're those uh, Bal- from one of those Balkan countries. And they're Africans and people from all kinds of places where the wars are going on. And they, they want to get out of their own country. And they want to come to Germany. And, of course, there's a resistance and uh, and there should be a big resistance. But no, now this damned expelli group under this new fellow uh, wants to take this position to make friends with everyone. He's uh, His name is Bernd Fabritius. That's a, uh, he's from Romania. He's called a German-Romanian. Is that, that's the way it's, it's put. A German-Romanian or, or yeah, uh, and... Uh, Fabritius must be a Romanian name, kind of Roman, Italian. His father must have been Romanian or had a Romanian name. And and also he's 49 years old, so he wasn't alive during that time. He was born 20 years later. He didn't experience any of that, so it doesn't have the same meaning for him. And but of course time is going by and you can't have not going to have people who were living then to run the organization as time goes on. You have to have the the newer people who weren't born then. 
But he says, we are born bridge builders. He, he's a member of the Bavarian Christian Social Union. So he's kind of conservative, on the more conservative side. But uh, he's, he's been a member of this organization for a long time. He came to Germany in, the, in like in 1985, I think it it was, uh, with his family. So they, they didn't leave it. They stayed there a long time. They finally didn't feel welcome or comfortable, and they moved. But they didn't have the difficult time of moving that the earlier ones did. They weren't terrorized in that way. And now he says so. One of the responsibilities of expellees and their descendants is to remind others that deportation is never and for no reason justified. Well, if deportation is never and for no reason justified because these Germans didn't want to be deported, of course, I don't think they would have wanted to stay in that communist country under Soviet rule either, you know. But uh, that means that uh, their position is that it was wrong to deport the Jews. Of course, that's the position of most people today, that it was wrong for uh, Germany, National Socialist Germany, to ever have deported the Jews. There's never a time to deport anyone. Well, that would mean it was wrong for Edward I to just kick the Jews out of England. It was wrong for Queen Isabella of Spain to, to drive the Jews out of, to make the Jews leave there and at all the other places where the Jews have been. So it, I, don't, I don't go along with that at all. And in January, he spoke out against the weekly anti-Islam street rallies. That's the Pegida. They don't mention the name of it. But he spoke out against the Pegida rallies beginning in January. That started last October, actually. And he says, The Federation stands with particular empathy by the victims who are coming to Germany after fleeing or being deported. And he says the German expellees and refugees are painfully aware of what it means to be forced out of one's home. So if I were in that expellee organization, and he's saying that this federation, this organization stands by the victims who are coming to Germany after being deported or fleeing their homelands, I, you know, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't want him saying that in my on my behalf. But now he's the president, so I guess he thinks he can. Here now, the the uh, the writer of this article goes on to say, after losing World War II. Germany ceded its easternmost territories to Poland and the Soviet Union under an agreement. Ha, ha, ha. You know, with the Allied powers in 1945 and 1946. Germany didn't agree to cede its territories to Poland and the Soviet Union. They were, they were beaten in the war. They were driven back into Germany and that was just taken. Uh, that's so ridiculous. And then it says that... Uh, uh, as newcomers and also reminders of Hitler's war of aggression, the expellees weren't always welcome. Well, they were, uh, all these all these uh, ethnic Germans came flooding, you know. We're talking about 12 million by then. Some of them died but uh, on the way, but they, they came flooding into Germany, which is true, was a shrunk and was uh, decimated and devastated and so on, and so there was not enough room. There's no place for them to, to be. They were put in all kinds of strange, uh, horrible camps were created and old barracks and so on. And life was really terrible for them. And the uh, Germans who were there felt like, God, we don't, we can't, 
getting along already, and now we've got all these people here. So, yeah, it was uh, it was difficult, very difficult, and the feelings weren't always very loving and friendly. But they they blame Hitler's war of aggression on it. They don't blame anything else, you know. And they say that the Germans who were there were reminded of Hitler's war of aggression by these expellees, and that's not the way it was. I don't. Only a few, only the people who were uh, always against Hitler, but most of the people were not. And so this was not the way it was, but this is what they want. This is the way they want to portray it here. Then they say commemoration. She says commemorations of the deportations, while often low-key. Well, they wanted to commemorate things, uh, you know, year after year on their own, but they kept them low-key because they drew suspicion in mainstream Germany. Well, what was mainstream Germany? Jew-dominated Germany and communist leftist-dominated Germany. So they hate, they didn't want any of this. So that's who they mean by mainstream Germany. Most Germans wouldn't have minded it. Uh, always they come up with the Nazi crime stuff. So uh, they they sought to play down Nazi crimes, these, these expelli commemorations. When they when they founded their federation in 1958, the one they have now, the members sought to keep alive the refugees' old regional identities. That was one thing. Their traditions that they had there, their cultures, and you know probably even the the clothing and the dress that they wore. And when they had their commemorations, they would all dress up and all this to remember it, to keep it alive. For in their minds, they didn't want to give it up and to document the history of their exile. And they also advocated for the rights of Germans in their lost territories. At the extreme, some of them called for return of property. See, it, they weren't all, it was controversial to call for a return of property because the, the German government didn't support it. But a lot of the people wouldn't give that up because uh, they knew that they had been mistreated and they didn't know that they had anything wrong that they had done. And so they wanted justice, but some of them gave that up earlier. Well, now now they say here, uh, oh, they're talking about how the critics of this organization and these people uh, keep playing on, again, it comes up, keep playing on the fact that uh, they say that 10, they've discovered in this study, that 10 of the Federation's founding 13 council members had a Nazi or SS past. Well, that, they're talking about the original ones back in 1945-46. Well, okay, 1953, all right. Um, well, is that unusual? Why wouldn't they have? Because they were a member, they were part of their government. And after the war, it was only those who were openly anti-Nazi at the time were acceptable after the war. If you, if you went along with the majority of your country, and you're in in the national socialism, but you were seen as some kind of a criminal. And it was only the people who weren't, who were openly anti, like the social democrats, and not all of them were, were acceptable to be holding any offices and so on. And then they talk about Erica Steinbach, calling her the sharp-tongued conservative lawmaker, who led the Federation from 1998 to 2014, and courted controversy. Well, she didn't court it, but she got it because she said what she thought and she spoke the truth. She was among 13 uh, lawmakers in 1991 who refused to recognize reunified Germany's new border with Poland. 
So there we go. It was in 1991 that, yes, with the reunified re- reunification of the two uh, countries, that Germany had to agree to recognize the current borders and not dispute them anymore. And Germany did do that, supposedly, in order to be able to reunify East and West Germany and have a, a more sovereign nation. Supposedly that created a, a sovereign Germany, which it still isn't, though. But Erika Steinbach was one of 13, only 13, who, who wouldn't do it, who wouldn't go along with it. Well, that's how, how hard-minded she is about this subject. This newspaper in Poland called uh, Reszpolita, I can't, I mentioned it once before. They ran a poll of polls, and she came in second behind uh, Vladimir Putin in a list of figures who caused fear among polls. That's very funny, but it actually was too bad because they were deathly afraid of her. They just wouldn't, couldn't work with her, they said. And so Mr. Fabritius, on the other hand, is very different from her. He's what I would call a wimp. He's, as I said, already gave you his age. He's less confrontational and moving to position the organization as a champion of human rights and a bridge to Germany's eastern neighbors. Well, so I say, will any of these eastern neighbors that they want to become so, get such good relations with, will they take in these refugees who want to come to, into Germany? And do these refugees even want to go to Poland or Czech Republic? They only want to go to Germany because that's where all the goodies are for them. So, uh, you know, this doesn't work out in a fair way at all. So why have all this concern about your neighbors? Uh, let's see, uh, Fabritius said, a quote, Miss Steinbach made comments in the past that could have been misconstrued given the sensitivities that still exist in Poland. Well, Poland is even more sensitive than the Czechs, Czech Republic. They, they are the most sensitive people, and they always have been. And, uh, boy, I could, well, I don't have time to say more about them. I want to talk about Fabritius. None of, not him or none of his relatives had experienced forced exile. but And he has uh, nurtured friendships in his former homeland, so he just wants to get along with everybody. There's another man here I like uh, who's old. He's 74 now. Rudy Powelka. He's the former head of a lobby group for expellees from Silesia. He's up in, was up in Poland. And he says the Federation is, is betraying its purpose by what... Uh, this Fabritius is doing by backing away from issues such as land ownership. This is very bad, he says. He was expelled from Roklaw, which uh, was Breslau, uh, and now Poland's fourth largest city, with his family in February two, uh, 1945. So early, February 45, he was, he was expelled and probably went through a pretty terrible time. He would have been about five years old then. So he remembers it. And he has since filed reparation claims against Poland that are still pending. He's not giving up. He he wants some reparation. If he can't have his property, he wants them to to pay for it, like everybody else, like Germany has had to do for everything. He's a good man, but like I say, you know, they're all up in age, and the new the new younger generation is not going to stand up to any of this. And then the uh, there's a man with a long Polish name who is being quoted at the end of this article. 
He's a history professor at the University of Roclaw, which used to be Breslau. And uh, they're, they're asking what he thinks. And he says that the former German regions of Roclaw and Silesia in Poland had been Nazi strongholds, whatever that's supposed to mean. And the Federation, well, that's because these, uh, these Germans lived there. And they're, he's bringing up the Nazi issue again. He says that the Federation has long been viewed with skepticism in Poland. Well, gosh, I guess so, because of the suspicion that it sought to make the instigators of the war into victims. He says, I am skeptical whether such institutions still make any sense. Well, who is he? These are German institutions. And he is saying that they don't make any sense anymore. They should get rid of them. Well, he's a Pole thinking about what's good for the Poles, and they don't like this organization, and they don't like being asked to give anything back. You know, it always goes that way, and they always end up with quotes from people like him in, in these articles. So to sum up, and I've, uh, oh, I've got very little time left here, unless I go over just a little bit. That's it. I guess I will try to sum up, though, a little bit. That, um, that as I said in the beginning, the, the people who I agree with don't stand a chance here. And it's all, it's all time is running out and people are passing on and new generations are coming along and they've been totally brainwashed. And there's no hope for it anyway because if your own government, if your own nation doesn't stand behind you, you know, if, if Germany stood up for Germans of this type instead of Jews and uh, left-wing uh, globalists and so on, if they did that, then there would be some clout to it. People could get somewhere. But if your government doesn't stand behind you, uh, and yet, and that government, in fact, is far more sympathetic with the foreign government than it is with its own people, which is the case, then you don't stand a chance. And we started out with uh, the story of the rape, bringing this out into the open. You can do it all you want. She can write this book and so on. But it's not going to bring about any change. I don't see, I'm going to end on a very uh, negative note here. I don't see uh, the plight of wanting to have uh, white nationalist countries, uh, nationalist countries of your own type of people uh, ever being possible anymore. I don't see it being possible. I don't see anything being possible then. I see that uh, it's gone too far and there's no sympathy for it. I was listening to, uh, I had to go out today, so I'm a little bit tired tonight, but I had to be out a large part of the afternoon and so in my car again. And, and I heard a few things on uh, national public radio that just were so discouraging sounding. You know, the way they take all this for granted that racism is so uh, impossible. Just you just can't have it. You just it just can't be. I mean, there's some outrageous stuff uh, that was being said, which at the moment I can't even bring to my mind. But just outrageous. And I thought, God, you know. I, I mean, I know that NPR is very bad. It's one of the worst, uh, most extreme. But still, in all, um, the whole thrust of all the talk everywhere and is. Uh, is racial mixing, racial mixing, racial mixing. Oh, this was about uh, this was about blacks. Oh, what was it? Oh God, it was about um, oh a medical program. And they're trying to they're trying to help 
this new program for black people to, uh, well, they were all blacks that they were talking to. It's not for black people, but that's where they're, that's where the money's going, and that's all the voices that I heard were, that, you know, crises and dis- bad experiences in your childhood, even even before you're born, but and after you're born and all the way through your childhood, every bad experience that you have gives you a tendency for health problems, physical physical problems with your health later on. And so now they have this program. Oh, yeah, it's called um, ACE, A-C-E. And uh, you can take tests. The doctors are supposed to ask these questions to their patients. And if they uh, have these bad experiences in childhood, then uh, then you have to uh, help them so that they don't be- become more ill. And you have to help them get over, you know, work through these things and so on. And look at how black families are. They, were, they, had this, they were featuring this one couple. Now, this one man and his son, and his, he had been living with his mother. They were black. And the mother was, uh, one time the mother uh, slapped him and put uh, fingernail marks on his face. And when that was seen, well, then uh, it was reported, and, and she lost custody. And custody was given to the father, who had never had him at all up till then. And now uh, the father is doing so well with him, but this boy is uh, overweight, very badly overweight. So you see all the problems they have, and then he grew up with his mother, and so he had all of these difficulties. And we're going to fix this. You see, this is, there's programs now, oh, we've got to fix this. Well, they're all going to be black, and who's going to pay for this? We're going to pay for it. Whoever, who, you know, whoever's got any money, whoever makes any money is going to pay for all this. So... What happens, as so many of you already know, somebody's calling me, but I don't think I have time to take the call. Um, what happens is that white people are going to get tired of this, and there's no end to it. There's no end to spending our money for these non-white people who are allowed to be in our societies and more and more coming into Europe all the time. We're, gonna, we're not going to have our own children, less and less. So we, we won't be able to afford it. So who who's going to make up these societies? I, I just see the writing on the wall, and I don't see anyone with the program or any suggestions. Because even if you have a good program, how do you get it started? It's just uh, almost very, very impossible. Well, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, I, I'll just uh, reiterate that the Germans are a conquered people. There are at least a conquered nation. Nation Seventy years ago, it took hold and it's still going on. They haven't come out of it because their, their leaders are compromised and not for, they don't want a strong German people. Nobody wants a strong German people. They just want a hard-working German people, I guess, until, until they're not able to do it anymore, whatever. But that's, you know, there's nothing to be done here. I don't see anything to be done, so it looks to me like the uh, the German people are going to remain in this terrible state that they're in, and there's no way out of it. And that's something to consider. But there's no there's no use in being hopeful when uh, there's when there's no when there's no grounds for hope. And I feel really really horribly terrible about it. The only thing I can the only thing that I feel, the only thing that I can see as a way out is just is just that I'm not going to live. I'm not going to live way into the future. 
So I'm not going to see it. I have to deal with all this. Because I don't see uh, I don't see a future for what I would want and what most what uh, a lot of white people would want. But there's so many white people today who feel totally comfortable with multiracial societies, and um, they're comfortable with it because they're not able to to stand against it. They don't have the the strength in them. They don't have the 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 intelligence. They haven't studied the problem. They believe what they're told. And therefore, uh, they fit fit into it. And it's uh, overall, it could be that that the the demise of the German race, I'll call it, is just the front runner of the demise of uh, all of the European race. So, with that terrible ending, I'm going to say good night and thank you for listening. I'm not sure I'm going to have a show. Next week, but I'm I'm not uh, retiring my my show. But I need to get on to a uh, pre-recorded podcast, and I just haven't done it. I need some time to do it. So I will say good night because I don't want to extend this program any further. Thanks, thanks again, and we'll be back soon.